Good evening again, anyway, and uh, a, a big welcome now to Conor Costic, who is the biographer of Michal O'Hanrahan, and is going to give us a, an insight into Michael as a novelist, a member of the Gaelic League, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and his involvement in 1916. We also have a, a grandniece of Michael Michal O'Hanrahan's here, Deirdre Lawler. And, uh, and her husband Peter and we're very happy to have them here and if there's any other members of the family here that I don't know about you are, too are welcome so without further ado uh, over to Dr. Connor Patton. Well thanks very much to the Society for inviting me down it's always a pleasure uh, to talk about Michal and um, I'm particularly glad of the opportunity to address the society. The, the journal that you produce is really fantastic and, and uh, scholarly and very, very helpful if you're someone like me and you're coming to, a, uh, a, uh, to do some research like this. Uh, so Carla is, is a, it was, was a big help to me. Um, I'd also like to take the opportunity uh, to thank Michael Purcell because back when I was asked to, to research this book... Um, by Local Collins, the series editor, I turned it down. I said, no, it's going to be too difficult. Uh, because unlike some of the other leaders of the rebellion, um, he, the sources are going to be a challenge. And uh, Lorcan twisted my arm. I decided to, 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 to do my best. But it really was, um, it really was a big breakthrough uh, when Michael got in touch with me and started to orientate me towards your local sources, your... your um, the Working Man Club Minutes, the, the local newspaper, so I've lost track of where he is in the audience, but uh, thanks very much. Um, so I set off on this project, and I have to say that I was uh, neutral in regards to uh, my opinion of him. I really didn't know enough about him as a person to, to know in advance whether I'd like him or not, whether I'd be enthusiastic about him or not, and... Uh, you know, it could be a very different meeting tonight if I was to stand up in front of you and say, I, you know, he was terrible. <laughs> but fortunately, the more I uncovered about him, the more I, I warmed to him. And I can honestly say that uh, an adjective which is perhaps a bit um, old-fashioned, um, but I think appropriate, would be uh, that he, he really expresses nobility. The more, uh, and this is what I'm going to try and uh, communicate to you tonight, that Mihal Hanron was a very noble human being in the best sense of the word. Someone who, who sacrificed his life, of course, but it wasn't just the, the act of the, of the rebellion where he risked his life. It was his whole trajectory up to that point was absolutely dedicated in a modest and unassuming way in achieving independence. And I would argue he's the sort of person, if you've got a project to get done, you need a project doing, and you want someone who's not going to stand in the limelight and he's not going to um, you know cause ruptures about his place in the movement he's just going to get on and deliver the project that's the kind of man uh, he was and Carlo therefore can be very uh, very proud of him and I think it does reflect the importance it does put Carlo on the map because he learned his politics here this is where he he really came into his own so he's born on the 16th of January 1877 in New Ross and it is to a, a Republican family. Richard, his father, 
Um, the family's from Wexford. Is there, is there Jim here tonight who emailed me? Thanks, Jim. So I did a bit of work on the family in Wexford, but uh, not as much as can be done. And this is the thing, we're living in a revolutionary age for history because nowadays the sort of ability of people to crowdsource information to everybody to add their bit to the picture really helps uh, get a complete picture. And uh, I'm grateful to the point that... The, the family, there's, there's more to be done anyway on the family in Wexford, but the, there was a printing business uh, that was quite successful, owned by a Watty Hanron, not necessarily the brother of Richard, and, but Richard found it necessary to leave uh, Wexford because he felt the, um, the heat, basically, of the authorities who were looking at him as a result of the uh, 1867 uh, Fenian uprising. He was a Fenian, uh, he thought he was a marked man, and therefore he went down to New Ross and he picked the New Ross because he was a cork cutter and this is a trade I knew nothing about it's a trade that's completely disappeared now as a, as a sort of craft but back then it was, a, it was a skilled trade and you needed a port because you would get your cork from the, the, the trees of say Portugal or Spain and you would burn the cork so that it became uh, you know it, it, it closed up and, and, and so that it could float and the art of it was to not waste the material. So you'd burn as little as possible, and then you'd have the uh, then you'd cut away the the, um, the black stuff, which you would sell as um, a pigment for paints, and then you'd then you'd shape the corks by hand with with knives. And Richard was was a skilled master at this. And at first he moves to Uros, but then he comes here because, of course, you have one of the great uh, mineral water factories of Ireland here in in Corcoran's, and they need corks. So. He's got a good job here, and he sets up on uh, Tuller Street, 1991, is the premises. And by this time, there's, there's uh, uh, well, the boys are very young, but as they grow older, they, they do learn this skill. And uh, the boys get the dirty job, cleaning up all the, all the burnt cork, but they also learn the, the craft of it. And uh, it's not a bad environment to go, grow up in the sense that it's a chance, unlike some of the other trades, which would have been noisy and, and very busy and arduous, you're, you're sat in a quiet room cutting the shapes for, for your customers and it's a chance to talk. So their family has a, an atmosphere where I think Richard would have been talking about the history, talking about the, the relatives that were involved in 1798, talking about uh, Republican politics, uh, but also learning the language. I mean, the, um, Michal has a tremendous uh, grasp of, of Irish. He's, he speaks in Irish, he, he writes in Irish, and this is at a time when, of course, Irish has been persecuted. You know, you couldn't put your business premises in, in the Irish language without being taken to court uh, at the turn of the century. So they're doing this all in a voluntary basis. They're basically working their way through um, Father Grownie's uh, books on learn teach yourself Irish, and he's he uh, and they're so that and the whole family clearly clearly had. Irish because the, the Moira won a competition, one of my sisters uh, for an essay in, in Irish um, uh, later in life so that's the kind of family atmosphere but as a living and it's also an atmosphere I think uh, where they prized education so we went to the Christian Brothers School here uh, not obviously where you have it now but the, the parish uh, by the church and um, they uh, so they, and, and I think that uh, you know, there's work to be done here. Maybe there's people in the audience who know this, but some of those teachers, I suspect, were quite Republican in their uh, spirit because we have um, other people who went to that school became uh, prominent um, Republican figures. So 
uh, their education probably probably helped uh, inspire them in that direction. Um, and they need the education because the um, corporate cutting business as a, as a, as a handcrafted business is, is, is doomed. This, in, the, in their day now, by the 1880s, there are factories that can produce as much in an hour as a family can produce in a day. So it's, it's, it, they've got to do something else. Um, Edward trains for the, the post office and it's his relatives where we, we had the pleasure of hosting uh, tonight and, and, and in fact that's the only real branch of the family then that continues Edward's children uh, Harry becomes so accomplished that he can uh, he's numerate as well as, as literate and becomes an insurance worker and of course Michal uh, we talk about him as a novelist but he's also very um, uh, numerate very uh, capable in, in running finances of, of very large organisations. So they get a very good education uh, and they themselves are obviously uh, talented in that regard. But it's his politics, of course, that are, that are of interest to us. How did someone from Carlo end up being one of the main organisers of the, of the Easter Rising? And we can see that as a 21-year-old, he was very precocious, very confident uh, and got involved in a number of organisations. So he, he starts to appear in the, rec- in the historical record, well, first of all, for founding the Gaelic League here. So a tremendous thing to do. You, you know, a 21-year-old, to, to t- take the initiative to found the Gaelic League is really, really admirable. Um, and becomes the first secretary of it. And it's unusual for the Gaelic League. At, at the time he founded it, so um, uh, in um, 91, I think it is, but don't quote me on that. I'll have to dip into the book. Um, but what I did notice uh, when I was looking into this was there weren't that many branches outside of Dublin. So it was one of the first outside of Dublin. And the other thing about it was that I think there was um, more of an equality of gender in terms of the Carlo branch, in that we, we soon have a woman uh, leading the branch and we, we know about his sisters. So uh, um, whereas that, you know, it, was, it tended to be a male organisation elsewhere. And the other thing was it was slightly more... Um, artisan based rather than well to do people involved in it in the Carlo branch and some of the same names crop up in supporting the, the early Gaelic League branch here as will crop up in the founding of the Working Man's Club which I'll talk about shortly so this is his first um, initiative and, it, and it's, a, you know, it's a successful one the, uh, and it gets him some national attention too he reports from Carlo in the national Gaelic League uh, papers and he starts to go up to Dublin for the national events and this is where he would have first met Patrick Pearce uh, and some of the other key figures, Owen McNeil um, very heavily involved as well um, and of course the GAA so the, 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 the Hanrahans are um, not just players but they're, they're helping run the administration and we know this because there's a big fight uh, not the first time apparently riots amongst the players over some issue or other and they had to decide whether to um, award a cup that year or not uh, and, and you see the, the Harry and, and, and Michal involved in that decision um, and then there's the, the Workman's Club and this is um, you know, Carlo was very busy Carlo has a thriving uh, businesses I, and I just made a quick note of the, this is the, from the this is, would have been his neighbours on Tuller Street, would have been um, a butcher, tanner, shoemaker, ironmongers, timber makers, jewellers, glass workers, painters and decorators, bakers, coach builders, dressmakers, drapers, blacksmiths, 
Malta's dyers and grocers and printers. So a very lively uh, town centre. And the working men of these, and it, and it, it is typically men in this period, of this, of this community organise themselves into a working man's club and the O'Hanrahan brothers are very staunch, all three of them are staunch supporters of the foundation of the, the workman's club and here you, you, we could be looking at um, IRB membership already because it was IRB policy, policy back then to join these clubs because it was an opportunity to talk to the kind of social layer that they were interested in recruiting and uh, it would make sense because Michal then resigns from the club when it introduces a, a British soldier. And you all know Carlo is a, a garrison town and um, there is quite a layer here around 1900 of pro-imperial elite at the top of Carlo society. Pro-empire, pro the, the army, uh, sort of quite a few officers and so on. And when one of them wants to join the club, this is this is, provokes uh, Michal's uh, uh, opposition. There's a big debate about it, and he resigns uh, when the when the uh, soldiers allowed membership. And uh, we also see him at this time um, agitating against the Boer War. So one of the um, one of the policemen here decides to get up some fundraising activity for the British Army in South Africa, and they show a film, and everybody comes. And the room, the hall they attend is covered with Union Jacks. And at the end of the night, everybody sings um, God Save the King. This is what happens on night one. But then the nationalists of Carlo get wind of this activity and don't approve of it. And with Michal at the centre of the opposition, Michal and Harry, they go to the, the, the meeting the next night. And this time, every time we see a British armoured truck that's damaged, that's, that's burnt, hey, big cheers from the back. Kruger comes on, hooray, big cheers from the back. They try and say God, sing God Save the King, and instead the rousing chorus from the back is God Save Ireland. And the policeman is irate and says, I challenge you to name any country in the world that is more free than Ireland is. And of course, then they all start heckling and shouting all the different countries of the world, more or less everywhere is more free than Ireland is in, in the eyes of the, the hecklers. So they completely sabotage the meeting. The next night, they pull the plugs on the power. So there's, there's no more fundraising uh, for the British Army abroad. And, uh, and Michal is, is, is at the heart of this, uh, this agitation. So it's, he's really cut his teeth here uh, in terms of politics. And he, he has to uh, deal as well with, the, with a question that's going to come back to him at the very end of his life, which is the, which is the question of his relationship to the constitutional nationalists. So Carlo has a strong constitutional nationalist movement, but at this time it's split over the question of Parnell. So it's, it's divided. And the 1798 commemorations are coming around. Now, of course, the O'Hanlons want to play a part in this. They had a, a relative, and you've, you've the grave, the croppy uh, field where, they, where the, the massacre was. So Carlo very much wants to stand up and be counted in for the eight, uh, 1898 moment. And the desire for having a, a proper, effective commemoration forces the two wings of the constitutional movement to, to cooperate. And Harry and Michal, they decide to go in with the, the people who are going to be the Redmondites and support that initiative. Um, and that's, this is Michael Govney who's going to lead the council. But the unity that we see in 1898 
is not that deep because in 1916, of course, they're going to take very, very opposing positions on the question of the rising. So that is uh, he's, that is him coming to local prominence and beginning to connect up to the national movement. So the family move uh, to Dublin, and from 1902 onwards, when Richard's dead, so they have to. Richard dies, they, they don't think court cutting is a viable uh, option for them, so they, they set up basically a tobacconist news agent, 67 Connacht Street, uh, which is where they live as well, and they all get different jobs and, uh, uh, and try and, and support the family as best they can. And Mihal gets a, an important job, he becomes proofreader for the Irish language newspaper, and again, testimony to the self taught uh, skills at Irish that he can get this job, but it's also testimony to his political affiliation. Because the man running the, 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 the print works uh, for the Gate League is P.T. Daly, and he's the IRB centre for Dublin. So you don't get a job like that unless you're in the IRB. Um, and Sinn Féin have started to... to they've just been founded by Arthur Griffiths. Me also attracted to this, and to working with Griffiths. And, and, and uh, we, we can see him signing membership cards for the organisation that's going to become the Sinn Féin party. And we can also see him um, being fairly courageous then because on behalf of this new party he goes up to Newry to build a branch there. They hire a, a brake, you know, a horse and cart where you do your speeches. They, they go out to the, the meeting only to find an unholy alliance of constitutional nationalists and unionists have turned up to prevent the meeting and to, to basically disrupt it. And so Mihal's giving his speech on the cart. There's bricks and stones flying over him, but he, he sticks at it. And he turns around and he finds all the rest of the speakers have cleared off. Bomber Homsen amongst them, and who was no uh, uh, shy violet. So uh, that was a tough audience, but he, he stood his ground to them and then um, and survived the incident without um, too much hardship. Um, the other big uh, role, he's, he's playing a lot of smaller roles at this time, but still significant. So he's the chair of the meeting that takes place in Dublin to celebrate Norway's escape from Sweden. Norway voted 99% to leave the Swedish crown. And over here, that was celebrated as a really good example of being able to leave a monarchy, uh, become, uh, become independent. So there's a big rally in Dublin, and, and Mihil takes the chair for that. Um, he's also handling money in a very uh, scrupulous way. And this is something that's obviously a feature of his life, is that everybody trusted him with money. And later we'll see him handling smuggled gold from America in a way that where there's, you, know, you, can't, you can't be transparent in your accounts if you're funding a secret uh, military uprising. So you've got to have men and women that you absolutely trust, absolutely 100% trust, if you're going to be handling large amounts of money. And he was trusted. And we see this as well. One of his first financial roles is that there's a, a, sh- a disaster at sea with a uh, fishing vessel lost, with all, uh, all, the, all the men die, and so there's a national fundraising campaign for them, and he's in, he takes charge of that. But probably the thing that brings him most to national attention, and certainly to the attention of the authorities, is his role in the big national marches. And they've become the, the Patrick's Day parades that were we're used to that are not very political now, the big you know, celebratory days, but back then Patrick's Day was not a national holiday and it was taken as a, a sort of unofficial national holiday and it was primarily uh, organised by the Gaelic League and the 
you could get up to 100,000 people parading through Dublin with all various tableau, often much more political than we would have today. So they would have one about why the protest that by the post office wasn't handling letters written in Irish, and, and uh, they would have reenactments from Ireland's imagined past with a, with a strong national message. And in 1908, he's, he's basically the second in command for organising this, and then in 1909, he is the organiser. So he's the one who books Phoenix Park, and therefore the authorities would know who he was at this point. He's the one who uh, organises the train for the, the coming down from the north, and when there's not enough posters, goes up uh, north to distribute them. Uh, and he even takes care of details like hiring a, a cart and to advertise the, 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 the coming parade in advance. So... Um, his, his competence as a national organiser is, is demonstrated there and then of course uh, when the volunteers are founded he, he, he is he's a founding member and very quickly becomes a very very central member and this part of his story is I think perhaps a bit neglected I mean you, I'm talking to an audience from Carlo so you're, you know, I'm sure you're all big fans of his and, and quite willing to hear that he's, he's instrumental in, in making this, the Easter Rising happen but he, he was quartermaster, first of all for his uh, battalion, where Thomas McDonough is the, the commandant, the 2nd Battalion, but then effectively the quartermaster general for the whole of the organisation. So he's going down to 2 Dawson Street every day, which is where the, the volunteer headquarters are, and out of there, he, he's the person to whom the money is coming and the guns are being distributed. So if you, if you want guns, you go see me Hall. If you want... Um, moulds for making ammunition. You go see me, Hall. If, so he's and he's, he's handling, like I say, he's handling the, the finances in secret, and he's um, he's he's the quartermaster for the rising. So he's getting all the preparatory materials. And whilst you know, if you're playing this kind of a role, it's not the sort of role where you do a lot of public meetings. I mean, he was he was still writing columns, but he was usually using a, a pseudonym. Uh, and he was not doing a lot of public speaking anymore because he's, he's, he'd rather get on with this job of preparing for the rising. And uh, so, he, you know, this is where the public would not have known him. The police, however, they knew him very well. If you look at the records for the G Division, the intelligence wing of the British uh, administration here, there's only one person in the whole of Ireland who has more uh, observations by the police than me Hall and that's Tom Clark so it goes Clark as far as they're concerned Clark number one opponent of the empire number two me Hall um, so and this is what gets him killed because uh, when the battle starts uh, he actually doesn't he doesn't play a, a, a fighting role I mean logically enough he's in Jacob's Biscuit Factory which is you know, if you're going to have a quartermaster anywhere, it should be where you've got a good food supply. Uh, so him and Harry are there. And early on in the rising, he is stunned by a fall in the darkness in the, in the bottom of the factory. And so he doesn't play a, 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 any kind of a combative role. But he's picked out at the end of the rising um, by the G-men because they know perfectly well who he is and, and how important he is. And you know, we know that the testimony at these court martials is, is flimsy in some of the cases, and in, in, in uh, Mihor's case, it's really clear that they, you know, they, it was just a rubber stamping exercise for Maxwell to have people executed because the um, Armstrong is a major who testifies that he was armed, 
and uh, th- there was fighting in which soldiers lost their lives, which apparently was sufficient ground to be executing people. But in fact, that Michal challenged him about being armed, and, and the Armstrong had to withdraw that. It didn't save his, his life, though, because whilst he technically wasn't guilty of what they accused him of, sort of morally, he was certainly uh, instrumental in bringing about the, the rising. And he wasn't on the military council of the IRB, but he would have been just outside that circle. He was one of the few people, for example, who knew the Ord was on the way, and the loss of the weapons of the Ord, says his sister Eileen, was the most terrible moment. She'd never seen him so shaken. And he must have had a premonition that this probably meant his death, because up until then, they, 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 they thought they had a chance of winning. But with, without that, they're caught, because if, to give in would be a massive victory for the Redmondites. It would make the whole cause look a shambles. But to go ahead is, means very, very likely you're defeated, and, and then the leading members are likely to face execution. So uh, that must have been an absolutely awful, awful moment for him. But just before I talk about uh, his execution, I want to say something about him as a novelist. You know, we know that the, the rise was a very literary event. These people, contrary to the tabloids at the time who tried to portray them as German agents, they were, uh, many of them engaged in a very deep and successful level in the literary world, in the artistic world. And this is certainly true for Michal. It's not easy being a novelist, even, you know, if you're not out every night campaigning, organising, raising funds. Uh, it's... it's you know, poets have a little bit of an easier time organising for a revolution and still producing poems. Producing novels, that's a big challenge. But he rose to the challenge, even if it meant being up into the early hours of the morning. And he did so particularly with a, with a focus on young readers, young adults, teenagers. And he explained why. He said, I grew up thrilled by adventure stories such as, as that of um, uh, Nelson who, when ordered to, to, to turn his ships away from battle, put the telescope to his blind eye so he wouldn't have to see the order. You know, and Clive of India uh, and his heroics, or his apparent heroics in, in India. So he says, why are there no Irish heroes? Where are, where are the books with Irish heroes? And he felt it wrong that I, Irish youths were growing up and their role models in terms of their heroics were, were, the, were these British figures. And therefore he quite deliberately set out to write novels with Irish heroes and um, the, the two that, uh, that survive to today are um, Swordsman of the Brigade which is a dashing adventure story of the, of the, the cavalry uh, in, in, in Europe in the aftermath of the, the flight of the Earls and it is a brave uh, noble Irish hero and at one point in that book we get a hint I think of his own attitude towards uh, the question of forming relationships because the hero of the book has a chance to, to for a romantic attachment and says no I'm not going to go down that path because uh, it wouldn't be fair someone who could, could well be killed uh, to start this, this uh, going down this path and that, that could well have been his, uh, his, his thinking and then the other, the other novel um, When the Norman Came is, is set during the Strongbow period but it's um, told from the point of view of an Irish prince and interestingly when you, when you read that book you'll see that the, the worst character in the book is not Strongbow fully enough and some, you know, some of the traits of the Normans are quite positive 
Um, it's Rory O'Connor, who's seen as having a huge Irish army, potentially, but not knowing what to do with it. And you can't help but feel, yeah, this is, this is relevant. Uh, we're seeing sort of projected back into history. He has a huge following, but he's not using it uh, effectively. And then there's another sort of poignant scene in, in when the Norman came. There's some captured prisoners, uh, and the Normans are wondering what to do about them. And the prisoners say, uh, one of the prisoners says, what, do, you, "Do you think they'll spare us?" And the other one says, "No, they can't spare us. They cannot afford the example." And almost certainly, uh, he knew his own circumstances would there wouldn't be any leniency. And just to say then that he is. Um, these books, by the way, they made the Irish curriculum uh, when, when Ireland became a republic. Uh, so for, for the latter half of the 30s and 40s, you, you would get taught these books in school, which is great, and perhaps they're due a, a revival. RTE made a broadcast of Swordsman of the Brigade, I think in 46. But, um, but his life is cut short, and we don't know what else he would have given us because, uh, because they, uh, you know, when Maxwell's orders, he's, he's shot at Kermain in jail. But his last, um, the account of his last hours uh, from his sister Eile suggests that um, he met his fate with, um, not exactly, with a calm state of mind. That he, he felt that they'd done enough to save Ireland, that the, the rebellion would yield uh, would yield uh, very positive results in the future and I, I don't think he was wrong about that so you know it was um, it was a terrible blow to, obviously to the family but to Ireland more generally when, when these men were shot you know, we lost a, a whole layer of, uh, of artists as well as political activists and very high amongst them I would, I would rate uh, Michal Hanlon as a, as a very big loss uh, when the British chose uh, to execute him. And like I say, by the, by the end of the research, I, I became convinced that, you know, there's very few people who would dedicate their lives to the, the cause of Irish freedom in the fashion that he did. I know lots of other people did, but you can't say of all of them that they did it in a way that was so sort of um, modest, so unassuming, uh, and, and, and so very effective. Thank you, Connor. <coughs> uh, we have two questions and answers now. Has anyone got uh, any questions you want to ask, Connor? So I was just thinking there about when you were talking about the all, uh, you know, and, and the weapons come in there. <coughs> what, what was the, you know, what was the logic of them that they thought that they could land such a huge amount of weapons down around sort of Tralee and be able to distribute them, you know, effectively enough to to have a, a significant effect on the actual rising itself at Easter? How, how, you know, what way did they think of the logistics of the whole thing? Um, they, they, uh, they, they thought they could manage it. I mean, it would have been a big challenge. Um, but from what I've read, anyway, and, and the, might be, you know, I invite other people to help answer the questions if they've, they've expertise in the area. But Cork, Limerick, Galway, they, they all mobilised and they were stood too, mo- you know, for hours at night waiting for the for their shipment. So, you know, there was a coherent national plan for the distribution. And as you know, it all goes wrong because the three radio operators. 
uh, drowned in the in the when the car goes off the pier. But um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Twenty thousand rifles and a million rounds of ammunition um, needs a lot of vehicles, really. Yeah. But uh, I and it doesn't look like they've had enough on paper on the night. I, I take that point, but. Um, from the people intending to receive its point of view, we've got their testimony that they they were ready for it. They did mobilise to receive it, and not only did they not get the guns, and therefore, you know, it leaves Dublin kind of isolated when the fighting starts. But they were demoralised, of course, because they had to go home without anything happening, without knowing what's gone wrong. They should really have had a large collection of people ready to collect those rifles had they been landed. And if the signal to the all was depending on two people that actually lost their lives, unfortunately, like it seems to me that there's a real lack of organisation. Mm. Like, and this, this blame cast, you know, in terms of Kerry and what was the yeah. what were the Kerry volunteers doing and things yeah. like that. I I haven't really gone into that yes. that argument. I know. I was looking at it from Michael's point of view, and he knows it's yeah, happening. Know, He's, yeah. In fact, he says goodbye. I think to Con Keating, one of the radio operators, is in his house just before the goes, uh, and then they they hear it's gone off. Anyone else? Uh? You suggested that um, Michael was quartermaster. He was quartermaster of the battalion. Yeah. But, um, Bulmer Hobson was effectively quartermaster of the overall organisation in truth. And I wonder what part Meanwhile actually played in the kidnap of Bulmer Hobson, because Bulmer Hobson was kidnapped on the morning of the rising. Yeah? Meanwhile was also missing um, for some time around that, and he lived quite nearby. Hobson was taken to Cabra, yeah? Meanwhile lived in um, 67 Connacht Street. And I just wonder, as a ruse, was Meehaw part of the team that kidnapped Hobson? And why was Hobson kidnapped? Yeah, I had to look into this because there was an argument in the 30s onwards. Michael Staines versus De Valera, with Staines wanting to be uh, the most senior surviving member of the Rising. So he, he writes two contributions to the witness statements. Now, I found Staines to be unreliable. So apologies, but I... Didn't like, wasn't convinced by his account but for two reasons. One is he stood next to Pierce when Pierce read the proclamation. He stood on the roof of the GPO when the flag was flown. I mean, he's he's Superman. And uh, but the other is he goes through his whole account without ever mentioning Mihor. You know, and if Staines was the quartermaster general, what, how could he not have a relationship with with, with the man running Two Dawson Street? Um, and in any case, then we've got plenty of testimony that the line of authority in terms of getting your equipment and guns went through the assistant quartermaster, Michael Staines, to Mihal. Um, and Thomas Riley uh, was furious about Staines' claim and says that he's got, the, he's got testimony from a number of people that Mihal was quartermaster general. Now, you're right, there was confusion over the exact title uh, because... Mihal was like secretary to Bulmer Hobson and, and officially in the volunteers you're right, Bulmer Hobson is quartermaster but unofficially and practically and I give lots of examples in the book if you came up from the country and needed guns it's, it's Mihal you went to um, so that's, you know I give him the title because Thomas gives him the title 
Markovitz gives him the title. There's a few others do actually give him the title. So I, I'm happy to give him the title of Quartermaster General. Um, I think it's like a field appointment in the last few days when they've got round Hobson. Um, and then his role in the kidnapping, he, I didn't find any evidence for a direct role in the kidnapping of Bob Hobson. They, they wanted him out of the way for the simple reason that he, he like um, McNeil, could have really tried, uh, caused a lot of confusion if he'd have set his uh, mind against it. But one thing I did encounter was Hob, uh, Hobson's fiancée turns up at Two Dawson Street because they're going to go away for Easter for the holiday. And it, it, one of the real difficulties he had was, was manoeuvring her from finding out what's going on. Uh, so he knows, he knows about the kidnapping. I, I don't, wouldn't put it any stronger than that. In relation to the family as a whole, the involvement of the total family, the Mohammed family, in the yeah. because they were all involved there at various different levels. And particularly the girls were yeah. involved behind the scenes. Yeah. In but that hasn't been written because obviously the, what they did was not documented. And only yeah. when she went to go get her pension, found difficulty in getting yeah. for that particular reason. But I mean, the family as a family in its entirety seemed to be very much involved as a total family. In the well, uh, yes and no. I mean, I, you know, um, my reading of it is certainly the, the girls absolutely, absolutely Right, really heavily involved, and and there's a there's work. You know, Paul was saying he's doing some work on Harry. There's a lot could be done with Harry's life story, and certainly the the, the Eileen is a fantastic figure, and they they were part of Wolf Town coming with Tom Clark. They did a lot of work for the, the um, working class kids of Dublin, and you know the poverty of this period. You know the slums, so that O'Hanlon sisters are, are raising money, making sure these kids have a decent Christmas. Uh, going to all the Kayleys and so on and that, so they're very very heavily involved and she's got a really important job one of the more successful regional movements was in Wexford where they, they took over the Anathium and it shows you what might have been possible I mean the, had it been a fully national movement and the British not able to concentrate their forces on Dublin you've seen a lot more t- uh, temporary uh, appendages of the provisional government running places like Carlo like uh, Wexford and so on and her job was to come down and, and try and sort that out, given the confusion of the council order. The only reservation I have is, is with regard to Edward. Uh, I didn't find any evidence of his involvement in supporting 1916. Uh, and he had stayed in Carlow when the rest of them had moved to 67 uh, Carlow Avenue. So, you know, I mean, that, that might emerge, but, but I haven't seen it. And did you find evidence that the fact that uh, at the end, when <coughs> after Michael was executed and Harry became the contact man behind the internet yeah. coming from the Dublin from Dublin Castle yeah. to, to Michael Collins in yeah. relation to what happened after that. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so you'd be familiar perhaps if you've seen the film Michael Collins, which is a sort of glamorized version of the relationship between Collins and Ned Roy, the detective who turned against his colleagues and started to support the national movement. And uh, absolutely crucial to that, and this is in Ned Roy's witness statements is the, the O'Hanlon family, they were the key link in terms of getting that information into Michael Collins' hands. And uh, again, there's a longer story to be told. I, I touch on it briefly uh, in explaining this is why the house is raided so often, although with the tragedy that comes with the Civil War, the worst bombing of the O'Hanlon's house in Dublin was from their 
former comrades during the mm. during the civil war. Well, Father, if I may ask, um, you made reference going back to Carver who was attending the Christian Brothers. He arrived here in 1880 as a three-year-old. Yeah. Was there any evidence already uh, in relation to, to the attendance St. Joseph's National School, which I understand was on the Pollerton Road at that time, it was built in 1861, I think. And was there any evidence that he might have attended that particular school? Paul's shaking his head, so he must have looked into it. I haven't looked into that. I didn't... But I didn't, I didn't find any evidence to that effect. But, I, you know, the sources are quite difficult for this period. I mean, the, the, funny enough, that, you know, there's, a, there's more always can be said. And since I wrote the book, the parish records have been digitised and, and, and could be something in there. Um, I don't know where you find that information, like with the school of kept records. Well, yeah, Paul. Yeah, no, we we have looked into it, um, and we did. so the the the, the, um, the records of the Mercy Sisters who would have been running the the, the, the infant school as it was, they are no longer in existence um, at all, um, so they're not there. But I think it's fair to suppose from two sources that he probably did. The first source is the Catholic Directory, which clearly tells us that kids of that age attended that school in Carroll and that directory information exists so it's reasonable to suppose that but there's also another piece of evidence that's quite useful and that's evidence with regard to Val Houston um, and he would have been in school around the same time as Michael and he went to St. Joseph's or what would have been the Mercy and we know the name of the, a nun and a teacher who were there at that period so there's two pieces of evidence that we can speculate with but at least they give us some picture as to what's possible mm. Sorry, on, on the evidence could be found in the roll books in the national school, but in the, quite a lot of the uh, schools, and in particular, I think I would refer to the uh, to the, the sisters and possibly the brothers. I was doing some research, and I was told in the department that during the 1940s, the department, the, the government sought, asked the schools to return any old roll books they had as they needed them for fuel during the night. Oh. <laughs> and that came from the department itself. One place you might get records would be in the church records, the diocese records, so any archival source, and one here in Ireland would be the Delaney archives, but if you not them, they may be able to help you out with um, schools and things like that. Any, anyone else? I, 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 I firmly believe that the only place you can get reference to children attending national schools is from the old books. And that's the, that, you, you would get them there. Some schools did not return them though. But a lot did. But not all. They didn't all. Shane. <laughs> we're obviously proud of Mike that we're proud of the connection I'm just wondering what you can across your sources here. How connected was he with Carol? Did Carol feature in uh, his correspondence? Did he come back very often? How, how much feature of his life did it remain once he left? Um, I'd say you can claim him. You, 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 you're entitled to claim him. Uh, New Ross, of course, they, they had me down speaking because he's born there, and they have a plaque. Fair enough, absolutely fair enough. Wexford uh, have the family connection, and that's fair enough too. But really, he is completely shaped by Carlo. He's, this is where he, he, le- he learns his politics. He, he 
he learns they can change the world. I mean, he changes Carlo significantly. And, it, you know, to, to believe that you can create new organisations where none exist and bring about a change in the, in the activities and thinking of a people of a town is, is a fantastic, uh, uh, you know, testimony to his confidence and his, his ability to sort of see which way the wind is blowing. So... So absolutely, he is, he is shaped by Carlo. Now, specifically, how often did he come back? I, I'm afraid I I can't say. I mean, he. No, I, I just can't say. I'm not going to speculate. I, I just don't know. Um, but he, you know, there's no um, renouncing it. There's no becoming a Dublin. You know, he's uh, he's 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 proud of his past. From from what I can tell. There's a thing too one might say of his objection to the soldier attending the Gaelic League. It, it, it demonstrates the actually politicisation of the Gaelic League at that period. So the Workmen's Club. At the Workmen's Club. Yeah. And also that happened within the Gaelic League because a lot of the original people that were in the Gaelic League and quite a lot of people that would be unionists are the type of constitutional nationalists. Yeah. That's why I'm including that. President Barrett. Yeah. Was the Gaelic League then one of the first organisations where you had um, a of all mem- of all of all types of society right. meeting together? Probably this would have been unique in history. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely, definitely, and they. Um, people who would would later find themselves bitterly divided over the question of rising were shoulder to shoulder trying to keep the Irish language alive and, and flourishing and um, from all different political persuasions and for a while the, the leadership tried to uh, you know tried to sort of promote that and, and say look this, this is not political being in the very gay league is a celebration and, and, and hence Hyde and the you know it's not a religious question um, but like Pierce said uh, it was a training school for revolutionaries as well you know within it there's a lot of people who met each other and networked who were to go on to be the, the backbone of the rebellion. Right. Did you find any um, that his father or, or mother had any influence in him in any way? Yeah, it's, it's quite moving, uh, both of them. Uh, it, that, so it's the dedication to his, uh, when the Swordsman of the Brigade was published, it's something to the effect of, uh, to my mother who who was so solid during the darkest hours and that, that, that reflects on both parents so it was a very very dark hour for him when Richard died clearly and then uh, Mary must have must have been the, the, the staunch one in, for the family during those difficult times so that, that's what I would look to Did you say his father was born in Wexford? Yeah Yeah with regard to the Irish rendering of his name, the O'Fadi in the middle, we're used to thinking of this as May Hall Hammerfound, and uh, on his memorial card is the O. And yet, uh, and, I, and I've seen a, I've seen a, a, a reproduction of uh, a letter you wrote with the U. Yeah. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Have uh, someone pronounced uh, May Hall O Hammerfound? How, how does one pronounce that? It's basically the same word. It's the actual, you have two forms in Irish uh, in surnames, that's Mac and O. Well, it's sometimes written UA in, 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 in Old Script. But um, it means grandson of, actually, as whereas Mac means son of. Mac. Or 
grandson of or descendant of. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a form of surname. When, when I was in. Actually, the, the surname O'Hanrahan or O'Hanrahan was um, actually not really the original Gaelic form either. Like if anyone would look at Father Wolf's uh, work on Irish surnames, would find out that uh, the original name was O'Hanrahan and it was actually a corruption of that name, which was actually originally a Dancassian sept that spread out in, through Munster. And it was actually my wife is O'Hanrahan, which was actually originally from Tipperary, but connections with, also with, with uh, uh, Kilkenny and places like that. So, so uh, I mean, there's also, I'd like to say one thing about the book uh, from the Norman Cain, uh, yeah. Norman Cain, actually it was a book that personally I had carried with me all my life, really, because my mother read it to me as a child. Fantastic. And I was taken by what you said about it being a real book for children, really. It was, it was very, uh, I remember the book was in our house when we were children, and I used to read it then, and I was able to read, but it was read to me originally when I was hardly able to read. And actually, it's worth looking at, particularly for young people, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I yeah, couldn't yes, agree with you more. On the, yeah, um, so I, I took my lead although I made a mistake with the, uh, with, with the, with the Sea, but um, I took my lead from his own, from the way he signed his own uh, letters, especially in his articles. Um, and, you know, Shay and I were in college at the same time, and, and I don't know if you had it, but we had some very dry lectures by Professor Catherine Sims, who's a fantastic medievalist, and I got her to help me with the, with the medieval side of things. But... Um, but there would be these dry long lists of dynasties going way back to the 6th century and but it was always she always said oh even though she was right in uh, you are so uh, that's that's how I, I pronounce it but you know with my English accent I'm not going to be the, the most uh, authoritative on, on pronunciations sometimes it's found spelled U-G-H or U-G but a shavo on it in older, older manuscripts as well so it's, it's, it's your choice really but it's not in form, it's now just O. It originally meant grandson of, so it's part of the story. Anyone else? No? Do you have any information on his brother, <coughs> Harry, who was interned from the Whatever. I mean, what yeah. became Tragic, really. Tragic figure because um, <coughs> there's a number of hunger strikes. Deirdre knows the figure, was it four or five? Five. Yeah, five. Uh, so. You know, the men who had been arrested had to fight for the rights, and this involved hunger strikes. And there's one, some military bureau testimony that he was against one of the hunger strikes, but of course, when everyone starts, he, he has to join in. And this contributed to his ill health, and he dies in 1927, uh, so very young. And he would have been, I think, a major figure because he had thrown his lot in with the anti treaty position. Uh, just at the point when he had become a member of the Sinn Féin executive, so he, he would have been quite prominent had there not been a civil war, and then he'd been a door judge as well for, for Dublin. Um, so he was, he was really up in and around those circles who later become Fianna Fáil and who later, you know, come into the government. And uh, So that career was sort of there for him, I think, if he'd have wanted it, but we, we'll never know. Just to add to that, quickly... Just to add to that, we have unearthed the fact that he was actually director of operations for Sinn Féin for about five months um, before he was sent back to prison. And that was from um, 
Arto Green's papers um, in the National Library. So he's actually director of operations for Sinn Féin for a short while during the War of Independence. And then again, he's arrested and sent back to jail. So he, and there are a number of photographs of him with the senior executive of Sinn Féin, one in particular that we've unearthed. So he did play a very senior role. And I also have a picture of him here as a result of hunger striking and what hunger striking did to the poor gentleman. And it's, it's, it's very sad. Miles. When, when he was in, in Frankhag in, in prison, he wrote a, a letter to Father Albert Bibby, thanking him for visiting his brother, his mother, uh, and, and, and the sisters. And he did also, uh, he was also in the Hammam Hotel during the uh, Civil War time as well. And it, Father Bibby, he, he met with Father Bibby there as well. Father Bibby and Father yeah. Dominic O'Connor both were in the uh, Hammam Hotel as well at that time. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to uh, ask uh, Pat O'Neill now to propose a vote of thanks to I want to thank Connor uh, for coming and giving us a lecture tonight and producing the first biography of a man that we're now realizing was such a serious uh, revolutionary. Uh, and at the point of shame that uh, we can retain him in Connor. He was 29 when he was executed, but he, did, he was 25 when he left Connor, so he did spend the formative years of his life in Durham. Uh, it is often said that your opponents are the best judge of your character than your friends and certainly Dublin Castle he was a serious adversary in their eyes as evidenced by the size of the, the, the trials that they kept on him Shea did mention his career as a novelist and it's the largest chapter in your book uh, and uh, he speculates what might have happened had he lived but I think had he lived he would have been a doer in the war in Venezuela and a novelist and his career might have, might have waited um, but uh, I want to thank you again for the, for the uh, lecture it certainly did demand justice in my book and I think the last uh, word is uh, what uh, Father Augustine who attended him the night before his execution he said of him that he was one of the truest and noblest characters that had ever been my privilege to meet thank you very much Thank you, Connor. Uh, I'd also like to thank the management of the IT for their use of the hall here tonight. And um, we're having an extra lecture uh, now in May, and, and uh, the 18th of May in the Seven Oaks at 8 p.m. It's been given by Finn Dwyer, and it's on the Black Death with reference to Carlo in the 1350s. Uh, you can get a, a full list of our lectures on our web page. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for coming.